Hello and welcome to the Storytelling with Puck podcast. We will, as always, start with a story. So I have been in Sports Illustrated twice in my life. Uh, I grew up playing golf, played golf in college, played golf professionally for a couple of years after college. So the first time I was in Sports Illustrated was my senior year of high school. This is the least exciting one. That uh, was uh, my senior year of high school. I uh, I won the state high school tournament and shot a record score on the you know the last round. So I was featured in what was called the Faces in the Crowd section of Sports Illustrated, where they feature like three or four people from high school or college, and they they put you in Sports Illustrated. That was kind of cool. And they talked about me there. My second time was only two years later. It was my sophomore year at the University of Tennessee, and. This was the year, for those of you who know college football, it was the year after Peyton Manning left the University of Tennessee. And yes, I have played golf with Peyton Manning. Yes, he might know me if he tripped over me, probably not. But I did get to play golf with him a few times. Well, this is a year after he left, and we were supposed to suck at football that year. And if you know anything about the University of Tennessee, football is everything. And my sophomore year, we beat the University of Florida for the first time in five years. Uh, we stormed the field. We tore up some sod. I still... 15 years later, had a chunk of sod from the end zone of that game. And uh, we, we tore down the goalposts. Well, I'm a sophomore in college. I was 18, 19 years old. I was an idiot. So naturally, I'm climbing on the goalpost, despite the fact that I'm a golfer and my body is pretty much the reason why I'm able to go through college. I decided to jump on the goalpost. And also, like idiots, we marched the goalposts four miles around the city of Knoxville. And eventually, like idiots, also decided to dump said goalpost in the Tennessee River because that seemed like the logical place to throw a goalpost. They float, don't worry. And so we, uh, about a week later, four or five days later, whatever, uh, the new Sports Illustrated comes out. And sure enough, that next morning, I get called to my coach's office at 6 o'clock. That was a great wake-up call. 6 o'clock in the morning, I get called to my coach's office, and he slams down the Sports Illustrated, and he says, what is that? And I look at it and I go, sir, that seems to be a celebratory video of our esteemed university beating the University of Florida, our arch rivals. And he says, no, who is that? And I said, sir, that seems to be a student who matriculates here at the University of Tennessee celebrating said victory. He says, <laughs> he interrupts me, he says, that's you, isn't it? And I said, well, yes, sir, it seems to be me. And I think I may have lied. And he said, no, that is definitely you because nobody else would wear uh you know, that t-shirt, a Tennessee golf t-shirt, nobody else on the campus had the hat that I had. It was kind of a recognizable hat. And he said it was turned backwards. And, and I was, well, anyway, it was definitely me and I got in a lot of trouble. So coach is like, well, the, you know, I get the typical punishment for that because he's like, you know how badly you could have gotten injured. I said, yes, sir. But I didn't, you know, thankfully he's like, you, you know, you could have broken a leg, broken an arm. You could be out the rest of the season. We can't afford that. You know, I was at that time, I was the best player in the team and, and they didn't really want me to miss any <laughs> or any uh, any tournaments. So I got in trouble And the, the punishment when you skipped a class or you were late to practice or you did something stupid like I did and hung off of a goalpost and threw it into the Tennessee River was 25 minutes on the Stairmaster wearing an 80 pound vest. And this is like you're climbing like a flight of stairs every 15 seconds pace with a 80, I think it was a 70 or 80 pound vest on. This thing was just so heavy. Well, I get on that thing. This is after our workout. So we worked out for an hour and a half. Then they put me on the Stairmaster. My legs are dead. I can't even feel them. I am looking forward to nothing else, but walking back to the, limping back to the dorm, lying down for the rest of the day and doing nothing. But I see coach and he's standing by the doorway and he's leaning against the doorway. And he looks at me with that smug look on his face 
And as I jump off the Stairmaster, I decide I'm going to run full speed past him all the way to the dorm. Because you can see through the, the gym, uh, at the, the, it's the athletic gym there, the athletic team's gym. You can see through it to our dorm. I'm going to run all the way. So I run right past him. He goes, McWilliams, I go, doing great, coach. And I keep, I mean, I'm running full speed. Well, probably not that fast at that time, but as full speed as I could. Only problem was if you, <laughs> as you go across this road, there is a curb, you know, where this is going now. There is a curb that's not even four inches high. I mean, three, four inches high. I've never had a problem at any point in my life, lifting my legs four inches up in the air to go over a curb, running full speed. Boom. I think I'm lifting my leg, but it doesn't lift. I face plant directly into the concrete, you know, get up. Thankfully didn't break my nose, blood everywhere. I turn around and coach is looking at me and he goes, still going great McWilliams. And I go, yes, sir. And take off, walk into the dorm and lay down. So, yep. Sports Illustrated two times. Only one of them got me in trouble. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. What we forgot to tell you as well, Matt, before you started the podcast today, is that the key quirk, I guess, of this podcast is that we get all of our guests to go on the Stairmaster for the whole recording. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Oh, uh, oh, what? What? Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll be there in 30 seconds. <laughs> I gotta go. Sorry. To Sorry, everybody. Matt had to leave today. Uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't finish the podcast, but I hope you enjoyed the story. <laughs> no, Matt, that was brilliant. I, I absolutely loved it. We'll talk more about that um, as well as digging into you and who you are in uh, just a second. But first, let's have a quick introduction to the podcast. You're listening to Storytelling with Puck, the podcast designed to show the power of stories in life and in business. Stories connect us on a deeper level, which is why we'll be sharing, chatting about and feeling the impact they have on every one of us. Your host, Stefano, is the founder of Puck Creations and we work with your business to define a clear, consistent, relevant brand which stands out from the crowd. We use that brand to create content that makes your audience think, feel and take action. Visit puckcreations.com to find out more. Before you do that, picture the thing you love most in the world. The thing that you love to do the most. Okay, now picture the way that you make money. Were those two things one in the same? If not, do you think they could be? Our guest today, you just heard him, he's finished on the Stairmaster, Matt McWilliams turned his passion into profit and he believes you can do the same so we should probably say hello and ignore all of the um sporting misery as um, matt other than uh, other than that amazing story can you tell us a little bit about yourself oh yeah <laughs> that, that was uh like I said, that was one of those weird times in my life. Um, you know, and, and it's funny, I think back to like the things that I learned in college, how much of them I, I use today. And, and I often joke, you know, my dad passed away when I was 25 years old. Uh, I'm 43 now. The older I get, the smarter my dad was. The older I get, the smarter my college professors were. You know, no, I don't use calculus. I, I do not use calculus and still don't understand why I took that class. Um, there are a few other classes where I'm like, what was I doing in there? Like agriculture. I, 
I don't, I couldn't even tell you, I, I can't tell the difference between different types of trees. You know, I know only know a Japanese maple because we have one in our front yard, but it's funny how we like, when I look back at those, those things, you know, those lessons, the psychology classes and the sociology classes. And most of the time I'm sitting there going, why am I even bothering to learn this stuff? And how much of it I, I use today, you know, around that time before my dad passed away, um, I got into uh, online marketing. I was a golf instructor with my dad. Uh, this was in 2002 and I was 22 years old and I would make, my dad and I would have like three or four students on a weekend. They each paid about $2,000 and we'd split it 50, 50. And so I'm, you know, on a weekend, I'm 22 years old making three, $4,000. That's not normal. You know, even in the no. United States, like I was loving this, like, oh my gosh, I am like I'm paying my mom $250 a month in rent and I'm making more money than I know what to do with, which can be a bad thing. Probably was because I learned some bad habits. It took me a few years to break, but that's a whole different story. And so I got, uh, one of these days I, I looked at my dad and I was like, Hey dad, what if we had more people come to the golf schools? What if we had like 10 people on a weekend? You know, we make, you know, two and a half times more money. Would you be interested in it? He said, yeah. And so, so I heard of this website called Google. You probably <laughs> heard of it now. And, uh, you know, but nobody really, it to your listeners. I'm not sure they know what it verb. is. Yeah. Just to be clear, Google was not a verb yet. It did not become a verb <laughs> until the mid 2000s. So this is pre verb Google. And I said, well, what you do is you like, you go put in, you go bid on keywords. And at that time they cost 10 cents a click, which people would just laugh at now. Like, <laughs> you know, you cannot replicate this today. And people would type in keywords and they would come to our website. Now in, in, in my book, I talk about how you need to create a lead magnet and people subscribe and then you nurture the relationship, you build a community, you create raving fans, and then they buy. It was not like that in 2002. Okay. It is not like this. We're used to that. Now we don't go just go to a website and buy something immediately, unless it's something we absolutely need, you know, like medicine, you know, things like that. And so you came to my website and you had two choices, give us $2,000 or leave. Thankfully, about one out of every 200 people gave us $2,000. The other night, 199 left, and we never had any communication with them whatsoever, which kind of sucked, but we didn't know any better. But for 10 cents a click, that meant it cost us 20 cents to acquire a $2,000 customer. You know, a 1% acquisition cost. That's unheard of, right? And I'll never forget, we had a really, uh, we had an ice storm in North Carolina. That's where I was at the time. We had an ice storm in North Carolina, which meant that the entire city shut down. Nobody left their house. Nobody did anything. You were lucky if you had power and we did have power. So I spent an entire Saturday afternoon. Don't judge me, Stefano, please do not judge me. But I watched an Ally McBeal marathon all day on FX. And I, I had a team. You're all good. Okay. There we go. Awesome. I, again, don't judge me though. You know, if you don't like Alan McBeal, I'm just saying I was 22 and I was watching Alan McBeal all day. It was an ice storm. And, and I had a ding set up on my computer every time a sale was made. And usually I wasn't there to hear the sales. I was teaching golf or doing something. About 10 o'clock in the morning, I hear a ding. About two hours later, I'm eating a Totino's pizza probably or a Hot Pocket or something that 22-year-olds ate back then. And I heard a ding. Two o'clock, a ding four o'clock, a ding, 4.10. It was like five minutes later, five, 10 minutes later, I heard a ding. I'm eating dinner, a ding. After dinner, a ding. Right before I go to bed, a ding. I heard seven dings. I went, oh my gosh, I made $7,000, $14,000 split two ways with my dad. I made $7,000 in the middle of an ice storm, never left my house all day long. Maybe there's something to this online marketing thing. And that was the genesis of me getting into online marketing and, and falling in, in love with the process. The, the, the flip side was I hated teaching golf. 
I absolutely hated teaching golf. I had my best friend Hunter and I, uh, we ended up starting a couple businesses later, but uh, we had always talked, like we grew up playing golf and we said, we are never going to be one of those guys who grows up playing golf and then gives up on their dream and ends up teaching old ladies in purple sweaters, how to play, play golf. That was our thing. No old ladies in purple sweaters. We're not teaching old ladies in purple sweaters. Is it the purple sweaters you didn't like, or was it the, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no. And, and again, just to be clear, it was about our dreams that we didn't oh, yeah, want to grow up and sacrifice that. And so I'll never forget one day we had this golf school. Again, money's great. I'm making more money than I know what to do with. I'm 22 years old, making, you know, literally $150,000 a year. It was ridiculous. And an old lady, about 75 year old woman, sweetest lady I've ever met in my life, wearing a lavender sweater, shows up for the golf school. And I take a picture kind of like this with the side of my outside of my pocket with my little 0.2 megapixel flip phone camera. And I send it to Hunter and I say, kill me now nothing against the old lady. Like I said, sweetest lady ever. I just knew at that point that I had given up on, you know, I'd done what I said I was never going to do. I wasn't living out my passion and, and, you know, a good female friend, you know, this stuff, I know like a good female friend, like if, for the ladies out there will be like, Oh my goodness, sweetie, they will call you back. They will fly across the country and bring a casserole with them and say, Oh, sweetie, I'm so sorry. I'm here for you. But like a good male friend, of course, Hunter replied back and said, ha ha sucks to be you. And so that was kind of the end of it. And thankfully, about a month later, my dad fired me, or as I like to say, he freed me uh, the day after my birthday, the day after I turned 23, my dad fired me. And I was able to embark on on this, what I'm doing now, ultimately, uh, full time, because I, I he just knew I was not passionate about what I was doing. And, and so that's really the premise of what everything I do, Stefano was like, okay, you've got passion. You've got, I love doing this. I'm having an impact in the world. I'm changing people's lives, but maybe you're not making any money doing it. And then you got the flip side where I was, I'm making amazing money, but I hate what I'm doing. How do we have both? Can we actually have both? And the answer is yes. So let's slow down a little bit. I loved your story, man. And I'm picturing you now, actually. I'm picturing you teaching <laughs> teaching uh, little old ladies in, in uh, purple jackets, <laughs> purple sweaters. <laughs> um, and uh, I can see your face going purple as uh, as you, you see them missing some of the easiest shots and you're wondering whether or not you could be playing maybe on the pro tour mm -hmm. <laughs> rather than uh, rather than rather than teaching them and I can I can see I can see that build up um but but let's take a few steps back let's go let's go back to when you were growing up you talked about the fact that you love golf you talked about the um the fact that you were sporty in general um that you managed to get into sports illustrated etc twice <laughs> once for maybe not not, not the best reasons and and that that's all impressive in itself but strip that back a second what when you were 12 what did you love what was your favorite thing video games <laughs> um so you could maybe say that no, was one of your passions at no the when i was 12 when i was 12 i was uh it was still baseball um you know i i grew up i mean if you want to you know backtrack a little bit more my, my parents you know typical american story sadly my parents divorced when i was two uh, I grew up with a single mom. She worked three jobs to to keep us on the right side of the tracks, but I could see the tracks from my bedroom window. Um, my mom never made more than thirty eight thousand dollars in a year. You know, I helped her do her taxes her last her last year of working, and that was the most she'd ever made. You know, never made more than thirty eight thousand dollars a year. Like we, I know what that's like. You know, but she kept us there where you know I never missed a meal. Like I never went to bed hungry. Uh, I might have eaten macaroni and cheese and hot dogs seven straight days, but I never went to bed hungry. 
you know, I never had the luxuries, but we always had, you know, at least basic television, <laughs> you know, and electricity. Yeah. And I always had my own bed. It, it was never raised up, but it was, I had one, you know, uh -huh. and, um, and then, you know, oddly enough, when I was nine, uh, I never really know my dad, you know, really at all that I, in fact, I actually weird thing, you know, and I, this is something I, I will admit, like I've been through counseling for stuff like this. I don't remember ever seeing my dad before the age of nine. I know wow, that I okay. did. I've heard other people have told me that he was there for this and he was there. I don't remember it. And, and it's very weird when you think about that. Like, how do you not remember talking to your dad on the phone? I don't, how do you not remember getting in the car with your dad and spending three days? I don't remember it. You know, I even remember going to visit him for a week when I was seven. I, we went down to Orlando where he was at at the time. He worked at a golf course down there. I remember going to Disney. I remember going to Epcot. I remember going to the pool with my grandmother. I remember the train ride down there. I do not remember ever seeing him. Really wow. strange, you know, how, how our brain were, and it works like that. But at the age of nine, I went to live with him. And uh, less than three years later, his career took off. Um, he went from being, when I moved with him, he was an assistant golf professional, professional at a small country club in Atlanta, probably making, you know, on the I'm right about average or a little bit less than what the average American makes. Three years later, he was a club director at a brand new club making well into six figures. And so the weird thing about like my experience growing up, and it, that was right at the age of 12 when that happened, is I've seen both ends of the, the socioeconomic spectrum. You know, growing up with a single mom, uh, basically just north of welfare. Thankfully, you know, we never had to go on it that I know of. But I know what it's like. Like she had her car repossessed because she couldn't make the payments. Uh, we were kicked out of an apartment once because she missed, you know, missed paying rent. Uh, that I know of, like I said, it's hard to remember sometimes. I don't remember ever having the lights turned off or the water turned off, thankfully. But, you know, things like that happen. We had to move 13 times in 14 years. You know, I mean, I know what all that stuff's like. And then yet I know what it's like to, by the time I was 13, I didn't know want. Like I could basically have whatever I wanted. And I don't mean to sound spoiled, but we had, like my dad made more money than we knew what to do with again, you know? So that was kind of cool <laughs> you know, having seen those. But yeah, at the age of 12, I think I was still into baseball and I was pretty sure I was going to be a baseball player. Uh, that was around the time I got really good at basketball and, uh, you know, started like leaning more towards that, I realized like I was good at baseball, but not like I was one of those people who like I couldn't stand to be like I couldn't stand to just make the team. It always drove me nuts. Um, my eighth grade year, I was the 13th best player on the best team in the city. We won the city championship by over 30 points. Uh, I played with six guys on the same team who ended up playing college basketball. I was, I would have started on any other school in the city, but I was the 13th best player on the team. And I'm going, okay, I'm good at basketball. Clearly, like I can go to the YMCA and I can play with the adults and beat them all. You know, I'm better than 99.9% .9 of the people who play the game. But I'm the 13th best player on this team, this middle school team. I am never going to be anything at this game. You know, I'm always going to be the guy who comes off the bench with five minutes left in a blowout, scores six points, and goes home. Like that's as good as I'm ever going to be. And I wasn't content with that. So I I quit basketball like the day after our last game. We won the city championship. I, I didn't play back. I didn't even touch a basketball again for about 15 years. I was like, I'm done. I'm wow. not playing this. This game is stupid. I'm not any good at it. I don't want to play. I got into golf. 
And that was the same thing. Like I had to be the best player in the state. Like if I wasn't going to be the best player in the state, by the time I was a junior in high school, I was probably going to quit golf. And thankfully I was the best player in the state. So I kept playing, but yeah, I was always, it was always sports for me growing up. I had no academic ambitions. Uh, I always did kind of decent in school. Like, you know, I was always a guy who made like B pluses, you know, never made A's and never failed but I always made like B's and B pluses. And then if I, if I really was interested in a subject like history, I'd make, I'd make a couple of A, like I make A minuses. I never made A pluses. <laughs> and then if I hated a subject like physics, I'd scratch by with like a C minus, you know, that was me, you know, like a 3.2 GPA wasn't stupid, but wasn't like, didn't excel, didn't stand out. It wasn't your thing. Academia wasn't your thing. And to be honest, I think that's yeah. the same for a lot of people. What's often missing is um, I think when academia isn't somebody's thing that it gets pushed on them and they don't get a chance to explore other options. Whereas, thankfully, because of the change in circumstance you had when your dad managed to get um, that leap into being able to earn well, etc., then you yeah. were able to explore yeah. different options, which, which I think is brilliant. The reason I was asking about your passion, though, when you're when you're 12, and I, I appreciate you going through the story of um, kind of the difficulties that you have, because actually that's kind of getting to the nuts of my question, which is mm. more about why you do what you do and why you care about where you are now. Um, and often I don't think that starts with it, it, it doesn't it, it can start at any time in your life but often I think there's there's, there's something hidden in our backgrounds and we kind of realize a bit later that oh yeah that's why I do what I do mm. <laughs> even if you don't think about it at I the can time. tell you what it is I, I can tell you what it is it took me five years to figure out that that was what that was a driving force uh, in my life um having seen both ends of the spectrum so I saw I saw my dad making great money but hating what he was doing uh the the flip side to that story is about four years later he left that job and became a golf instructor again from scratch until we started doing those golf schools he didn't make more than 80 000, 60 probably seventy five thousand in a year for six seven years um and i'm not saying that he was poor but he took a massive pay cut because he was passionate about golf instructing. He was not passionate about being the club director because the club director is in charge of everything. Like if you bought a bagel at the golf course, my dad made a penny. Uh, you bought a you bought a, a mixed drink, he made five cents. You know, that, that you think about like how that adds up financially, it was great. He didn't care about the mixed drinks or the menu or the food and beverage director or who was, you know, over. He didn't care about HR or any of that stuff. He wanted to be involved with the actual day to day golf stuff. Uh, his favorite part of his entire job was he had to. We lived in Nashville, Nashville country music. And, and really now it's even, you know, actors and all that. And it was right around the time when Nashville was starting to grow and explode. His favorite part of his job was the fact that he had, he had to, was required to go play golf with some of the high profile members. So, I mean, there's a picture, uh, another, another magazine I was in for an odd reason. Uh, the one of the music industry magazines, I forget the name of it. But when REM, the band REM, signed what was then the biggest record contract in history with, I believe, Sony, there's a picture mm -hmm. of them. And in the front row, as it looks over the, their shoulders, is me with a basket of cheese fries at Pinehurst Country Club <laughs> going like this. 
<laughs> stuffing of cheese fry into my mouth. It was nothing for me to be there with REM because I was used to that because of my dad. That was the best part of his time was playing golf with the members, being involved and helping them to improve. And he realized that he's like, great, I made my money. You know, I made a lot of money. I'm financially secure for the rest of my life. Now I got to go do my pa my passion. And so the answer to your question, and sorry, the ADD in me is strong. The other time, this is funny, because like the, the only times I've ever really made it big as a child and, and as a young adult, uh, the other time I was I, I was famous was uh, on uh, the Atlanta Braves were playing a game. And my grandpa watched every Atlanta Braves game. And sure enough, there's a foul ball hit. The guy behind me catches the ball over his head. And me, I'm eating Haagen-Dazs ice cream with one of those wooden spoons right into my mouth. So basically, I've been famous a couple of times and it two or you know a few times and two of the times it was for eating food while something important was happening. Biggest record <laughs> contract and a foul ball being caught. And my grandpa saw it. And at the end of the game, they would show still images of like all the major plays, like the guy celebrating a home run or a shortstop making a big throw. And sure enough, one of the still images is this guy's hand over my head catching a foul ball with a spoon of Haagen-Dazs in my mouth. And my grandpa calls me, leaves a voicemail and goes, saw you on the game last night. Looked like you were stuffing your face. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, here's what drove me. Here's what drove me. Uh, seeing my mom and knowing what I went through. And again, not, I'm not comparing it to what a lot of people go through. I'm not comparing it. I mean, compared to the world, we were still in the top 5%. I just know how much of a struggle it was for her. I know what it was like to be left alone all day as a six-year-old, seven-year-old. Um, I know what it was like to literally go days at a time and see her for less than five minutes. And when I saw her, she was a zombie because she'd work till she would work from, you know, leave at eight in the morning. So she got up at 6.30. She would work till 5.30. She would come home, eat, change, and go to work again from seven till one or two in the morning, come home and get four or five hours of sleep and go do it again, six, seven days a week. I saw that. And I knew how I felt internally, basically not having a mom. I saw what it was like to not be able to, like, I never got to do anything with her. I mentioned baseball and basketball, all this stuff happened after I moved to live with my dad. She couldn't afford to, I never got to do any of that stuff with her. Now, yeah, I got to go play outside and I had a bike. Grandmother bought me a bike, which was like the coolest thing ever. I took, you would have thought that thing was worth $8 million the way I took care of it. Like, you know, there was a hill at our house. I wouldn't ride my bike down the hill, this big hill. I'd ride somebody else's bike down because I was not going to wreck my bike, you know? And I know what that was like. And I, I think I just kind of determined number one, I never wanted to go through that again. You know, I was never, I did not want to be at 30 years old and struggling. And number two, when we had kids, uh, they were not going to know what that was like. You know, I've worked, I've worked from home uh, since our daughter was a few months old. My son's never known me to work outside of the home. Like they go, they go a day without seeing me and they don't know how to process that. Like when we go, my wife and I go on vacation, just the two of us, they're like, you know, it's crazy because I work from home now. I don't miss their games. I don't even miss their practices, you know, like, and they don't know we don't spoil them. Like they just got their first video game console and our daughter's almost 12, you know, and they barely get to play it because we make them earn it, but they don't know what it's like to be in need. <laughs> want. 
And I, I just kind of determined yeah. I never wanted them to experience that. So yeah, that is what drives me. I love that. I, that's a, that's a, an extremely powerful drive. And um, it's interesting. I think sometimes people don't think about what drives them. They don't think about their why. But actually, if you understand your why better, and also as an employer, if you understand your employees' why Absolutely. better, their motivations better, you've got a much better chance of succeeding. Now, I think I know the answer to this um, already, or I have an idea of the answer to this already, um, because you talked about your why, and your why explains, I guess, why you don't want to um have poverty and why you want to have mm -hmm. enough money to make sure that your family are comfortable at the very least um, and are doing well and, and as you say never have a need and it's not about spoiling them etc and maybe this goes hand in hand and, and maybe you'll give the same answer but what would you say your passion is right now so we were talking about your passion at 12 baseball we were talking yeah. about um, your passion developing which always had to do with sports and went to basketball golf etc over time but right now, at this very moment in time today, what would you say your 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 biggest passion is? Yeah, and I'll answer that. But I do want to go back to just like I because I forgot to close a loop there. I left a little bit of an open loop. Of how seeing my dad not living out his passion, the part I left out. I mean, that's ultimately I believe I I can't be sure, but I think that's what drove him to alcoholism. You know, my dad my dad was an alcoholic, um, and I think a lot of that was, yeah, you know, he's. He, the the work was such a grind and it wasn't the kind of grind that you do and you finish and go yes i accomplished something it was the kind of grind where you go what have i accomplished you know oh goody i made a thousand dollars today you know whatever <laughs> you know i mean there there's something to be said for it. it's okay to do do that for periods of time uh yeah. weeks or even months or possibly even a couple of quarters but when you're doing that every day for years and years and years um by the end I, I when i look back i didn't notice it because i was 15 16 years old when i look at back my dad was depressed he was a zombie that's when he ended up going on high cholesterol and high blood pressure medicine he had panic attacks that i didn't find out till years later that he'd gone through um i mean we we you know he would wake up every night in cold sweats um those stopped when he quit that job they stopped they stopped overnight um he wow. literally said he, the anxiety medicine made him feel weird and he said i stopped taking it and then about two weeks later he you know he left there and the panic attack stopped that day he told me they just Amazing. stopped like it doesn't take a psychologist or a neuroscientist to figure out what was causing the panic attacks it was the job yeah. Again, great money. Yeah. So, so, so that's again. I've seen that. I've seen the, the driving side of I'm not going to live in poverty. And and I went. I don't think I would call it poverty. I don't think the government technically. Well, yeah, they do. They classify it as technical poverty. I'm not going to live like that. And I'm not going to live like that. I'm not going to live in either of those extremes. I'm going to live with both. You know, we're going to have both. And so for me, I mean, my my passion, I thought for the longest time, it was uh, it was personal development, leadership. And so I started a platform, like I'm going to be the next Tony Robbins. I'm going to help people. And then I was, I was helping people. I would get blog comments and emails. Matt, you saved my marriage. You saved my life. I had, I had multiple people say I was, I was thinking about suicide. And I read something or heard something that you wrote or said, and I decided, nope, not today. You know, uh, I had people saying it was helping them be better leaders, uh, be better people, husbands, dads, whatever it is, just better friends. Uh, they they were happier. You know, like I was helping hundreds of people, potentially over a few thousand people, 
be happier and better people. Like, oh my gosh, like that is amazing. The problem was, <laughs> I think you might see where this is going. Um, I wasn't making any money doing mm -hmm. that. And, you know, the, the, the funny thing is like our, our, our kids, they play soccer, football, you know, for those of you in the Netherlands, uh, still a little bit upset that they beat the U.S., but we don't have to go there, you know. <laughs> and uh, you know they 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 play soccer. It's a couple thousand dollars a year for each of them. That soccer association doesn't. I can't forward them an email or a blog comment and say, "See the impact I'm having on people? Can we get a discount?" Yeah. Uh, the mortgage company that we used to have for our house, uh, they never took payment in terms of the impact I was having on society. That was not, but they only take cash. And the issue that I was having, this thing that I love doing, I was waking up at 5.30 in the morning. Uh, I mean, you, I'd get up and I'd create content, record podcasts, write blog posts. And I loved every minute of all the email, the impact I was having, the community I was building. I loved it. So much fun. It didn't make any money though. And so I was eventually going to burn out because I could not continue to justify spending the money that we were spending to do that and spending the time that I was spending and not bringing an income in because it was sacrificing time away from my family to do those things. And so at the same time, I couldn't do the other stuff I'd done where I did it all for the money. So again, the, the answer, you know, to answer your question today, my passion that I found over the course uh, about a decade ago is we help people uh, to start and grow an online business around their passions. You know, it's like my passion is to help other people unlock their passions and then actually to monetize that. That really, I mean, when I, like when we work with our clients, our students, and they go through those, the phases that we outline in the book, right? Where it's like, they discover, they get clear on their passion and then they, they get past this fear of being a leader and they learn how to get noticed in the marketplace. They start growing an email list and they build a, an, a, an, a, a community of raving fans. And then they start making money and they go, Matt, I made $6,000 last month. You know, it doesn't have to be mad. I made $25,000 or a hundred thousand. That's not, that's not what it's about. Like I made enough to live from yeah. my passion. Oh my gosh, like how freaking cool is that? It really is cool. Working, feeling less like work because it's what you love to do. Wow. Keep listening for more incredible stories from that. We're going to find out if starting a business really is for everyone. We're going to see the differences between leadership and management. And we'll talk about the power of stories. We will, of course, have a story by Park Creations. Talking of stories, they are one way to give you the power to speak. Here's the host of Power to Speak, Jackie Goddard. My creativity at its best, it's a real exploring, it's a surprising journey. I think creativity is just the, the antidote to insanity and its productive originality. Surprising answers, inspiring stories, motivational, educational, inspirational. Wise words with Power to Speak the podcast. Find us on your favourite podcast platform or watch on YouTube at Power to Speak the podcast with me, Jackie Goddard. So let's get into that a little bit more. 
your story is amazing and I, I think every single one of our listeners is going to be inspired by it they're going to see what you've gone through see that you've had both sides of the coin yeah you've had some times where you had privilege but yeah you've also had some times where yeah. you've had difficulties and uh, so you, you know you're connecting I think with a lot of people by by, by doing that and I think they'll all appreciate and give you a round of applause almost for being able to convert your passion into a business that's that's profitable. And the fact that you're helping other people to, to do it is brilliant. However, I can almost picture now some people listening to this and going, yeah, that's all right for him. And it's all right for some of the people he helps. But, and there's always this big but at the end, right? But, yeah. And the reason being is, so let's give you a little bit of my own background my own story um i i worked in it sales for years and i've worked in different sales and different marketing roles across different companies i, mm. I, I quite like sales I quite like marketing but I, there was something missing for a long time which was the writing side of the business and being able to create which is now what i what i do uh, for mm. uh, for companies and 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 for myself and but because i was pretty successful in the sales and the marketing roles, it meant I had enough of a buffer to be able to turn my passion into profits, to, to use the words of, of your book. So I've been able to do yeah. that. I guess there might be some people who are working the other way around, who are currently working in jobs where they're struggling, they're really struggling, a bit like your family was before you were um, 12, I think it was, <laughs> um, uh, before yeah. you were 12 years old, uh, that they'll be like, but, but how, how, you know, it, it's a right for you. It's a right for me, maybe. But it, it, how does how do I turn what I love when actually I'm spending all my time just trying to work up trust, and I don't have time to think about starting up a business, or I don't yeah. have time to think about going into a different job because it would mean I'd have to quit my job. How so? How do people, I guess, get in to being able to do what you're saying in your book that they can do? Yeah. So I think it. it there's a couple of ways to approach. It. I mean, there's there's mindset and there's tactics. All right. So from a, I'm going to start with tactics, which is normally not how I start. You got to you got to start with the mindset first. But the tactical side kind of ties into the mindset side on this. Yeah, I'm not suggesting you go quit your job. Um, from a tactical perspective, you know, you start a, a side hustle. You know, living out your passion, and you the the key is that you don't start it out with the goal of making you know, being a starving artist for six months with that. You started out with the intention of monetizing right away. It, it could be $10. I can promise you, if you make $10 from your, your side hustle, from your platform in the first month, it is infinitely more than if you make zero. And that's not just a, a, a math equation there where, you know, what's 10 divided by yeah. zero, you know, infinite, I guess, but zero. you know, yeah, just work with yeah. that. The mindset yeah. of making a little bit of money is, is unbelievable. From a tactical perspective, here's what you do. Let's just look at this like on an 18 month timeline. You're gonna wake up a little bit earlier every morning, five, six days a week, and you're gonna you're gonna work on your your what we call your first job. There's this is a mindset shift. I had a friend of mine that said this to me years ago. About 8:30, he texted me. We were texting back and forth, and he said, Hey, I gotta go, I gotta go to my second job. He'd been working his first job for the first 90 minutes. His first job was his new platform, his blog. That's now his full-time business, just for the record, many years later. But for 18 months, a year, two years, maybe it, it could depend. If you build that income up, so you make $10 the first month, second month, you make 100, you make 500 in the third month, 700 in the fourth, whatever. Let's just say six months later, you're making $1,000 a month. You're still not able to go full-time, but just doing some quick math, 
you have $2,500 extra in the bank. You're making your regular income. Let's just say that's barely enough to survive on. And now you have $2,500 sitting in the bank. Over the next six months, you make an average of $2,000 a month. So now you have about $15,000 in the bank. The next six months you make, let's just go to 3,500 on average. So you got, now you've got, I don't even know the math on this, $35,000-ish in the bank. And you're still making enough to survive, not spending any of that money. Sometime in that fourth six-month period, you get to the point where you're making as much or almost as much as you were making from your full-time job but you have 35 to $50,000 in the bank. So even if you're making a little bit less, you can draw from that 50 grand that you have sitting there in the bank. If you're disciplined and don't spend any of that money, or like I did, what I here's what I did, is when I hit a new milestone, we celebrated by going out to dinner. So we spent like a hundred of it. You know, we go out for a nice dinner, spent about $120, $25. So I did, I didn't just completely live in, abject you know discipline and never rewarding ourselves when we hit certain milestones like we had our first thousand dollar month we went out for a nice hundred dollar dinner we had our first two thousand dollar month we went out for a nice dinner and so on but other than spending a little bit you know like five hundred dollars of that money over the course of about a year and a half it's at some point i was making enough from that platform what for me it was when i reached the point where i was making about five thousand dollars a month that i said you know what not only do we have about seventy five thousand dollars in the bank now but I'm comfortable where I'm making pretty close to what I was making. I'm good to go full-time. So that's a tactical thing. From a mindset perspective, I want you to think of a couple of things. Number one, there's no such thing as a born entrepreneur. Uh, I said this on a podcast the other day. I think I was born to be an entrepreneur. I think that's my calling because this is the best way that I can serve people in the way that I'm uniquely qualified to serve people. But I was not a born entrepreneur. Neither of my parents were entrepreneurs. Uh, I knew a few entrepreneurs, but we never talked about business. When I got fired from my big job, you know, many, many years ago, uh, the reason I got into consulting and ultimately started this business was not because I said, you know what, I need to go start my own business. The reason I got into this was I immediately said, I need to go get another job. And I applied to four different places and talked to four different places and all of them wanted me. And I said, well, how about I say no to none of you? And I just work part-time for all four of you. So I worked part-time for four different companies. You know what that's called? Consulting. I was an independent contractor and we had to legally start a corporation. That's how I actually got into having Matt McWilliams Consulting Incorporated 15 you know, 14 years ago was because I thought I was supposed to just go get another job. And I thankfully had enough offers that I didn't say no to any of them and said yes to all of them. It wasn't because I was born to be an entrepreneur or you know, I was a born entrepreneur and had the skills, leadership. Like we've developed a team now and I've got a, you know, we got a team of 14 or 15 people. You know how I learned to be a leader? Uh, sucking as a leader <laughs> and being a moron, but also reading and, you know, 50 to 100 leadership books and applying principles and, and, and learning how to do it. I wasn't, I was not a born leader. But that's the, the first mindset shift. And then the second thing is this, like, you know, the whole premise of my book, Turn Your Passions into Profit, hinges on one belief, and that is that the world needs your message, right? The world needs your message. We're all messengers now, 
Okay. That's the new economy. We're all messengers. The world needs your message, but it will not wait passively or patiently for it. We need your message, but we're going to move on without it. And there are potentially hundreds of thousands or even millions of people out right now that who are desperately waiting for your message, for you to share your message with them. And if you don't do that, you're not living out your passion. You're not living out your purpose. And you're certainly not going to have the profit side. And so when we disconnect our, ourselves, you know, from that comfort zone, right? The comfort zone, you know, that's that devil on your shoulder telling you, you can never make a difference. Yeah. Stefano, nothing you're doing makes a difference, man. It tells you your work doesn't matter, that the message that is trying to leap out of you will always be restrained. It's always going to be restrained by the societal pressures. You've got bills to pay. You've got your naysayers. All those people, your crazy uncle, your mom, your dad, whoever, your spouse, sometimes they laugh at the dreamers. All right. If you have not awakened to that reality that I said a moment ago, that the economy is drastically different today than it was 30 years ago, it's drastically, drastically different than it was five years ago. Dude, it is drastically different than when we started this episode 50 some odd minutes ago. That's how fast we're moving. And, and, and it is so different. It is so different now. So we're all messengers. That's what's defining this new economy. So be a part of that. And, and again, it doesn't mean you have to just, you know, I'm not suggesting that you be stupid and go, you know, tell your boss, screw you. Like you're listening to this on your lunch break right now. And you're going to walk in your boss's office and quit. If you've got $200,000 in the bank or are enough to live off of for a year and a half, I'm not going to discourage you from doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but even then it might not be the best idea. You might want to keep this job for at least a few more months and build up that side hustle. And you might find, we found this with a lot of our students over time, if they're good at their jobs, they find ways to work less. Uh, we, I, I'll just share one example with you. This was the coolest thing. They, they heard a podcast episode where I talked about working with a VA, a virtual assistant in your business. And he went, wait a minute, this guy, he works from home, granted. So this is a little bit easier when you work from home. There was a lot of administrative stuff in his business. So this guy makes about 75,000. He made, well, he's full-time now with this business, but he made about $75,000 a year. And he was working a typical 45, 50 hour week, you know, job in his business. And he started his side hustle about an hour a day, five days a week, and was struggling to get some traction because he just couldn't find the time to do it. He's making, you know, a few hundred bucks a month, about four months in. And he hired a VA for his business at like $15 an hour. And this, this VA took care of a lot of the admin stuff in his business. He went, wait a minute, why couldn't I have that VA do some of the admin stuff in my job? Now, if you do the math, 75,000 a year, I don't know the exact math on that, but that's like 1500 a week. He's making roughly $30 an hour. I'm just going to, I think the math might be a little off on that, but roughly $30 an hour, give or take, right? If he pays the VA $15 an hour to do 20 hours of his work at 30, he's only sacrificing half of his income at that. So basically he found a way to cut his work hours by 20 hours a week and then applied that to his new business, which was bringing in a little bit more than $15 per hour. So it was a financial wash and it helped him accelerate the growth of his business. Now, for some of you, that might not be possible. For others of our students, what they did was as their side business grew, they went to their employer and, and said, you know, hey, I'm great at what I do. Is there a way to cut back on my hours? And they went from working 45, 50 hours down to 30 hours a week just by, you know, and made a little bit less money, but by asking to be able to work less. So there's options there as well to accelerate things. 
Okay, I, I like that. I, I think um, it, it opens up the possibility to more people. And there will be lots of people who want to start their own businesses. There will be lots of people who want to follow their passions and want to do exactly what you said. So I think that this is really good advice for them. And I know we've only got an hour's worth of a podcast here, so there's nowhere near enough time to get into all of the details. And, and yeah. we'll, we'll talk about it in a sec, but your book will, uh, will, will, will help them through some of the other, other key questions they have. Um, one one question I do have though, um, and uh, this is me playing a little bit of devil's advocate here, but um, it's uh, it's always fun to be challenged. I think, <laughs> but it is is starting your business really genuinely for everyone, or can you, in your opinion, I have my own opinion on this, but can you make um, can you be passionate about the job you're in if it's not your business? I think so. I mean, clearly not. Uh... I teach entrepreneurship, so I encourage everybody on our team to do exactly what I said, to have a side hustle. I don't expect anybody on our team to be here seven or eight years from now. Kind of sounds weird, right? Uh, I want them to take advantage of it. I don't just, some companies you cannot have a side hustle. In your contract, you cannot have a side hustle. I actually, I don't legally require them to, but I strongly encourage them to have some sort of a platform, a blog or a podcast or to do client work, you know, outside of, of our stuff. But I don't believe it's for every single person necessarily. Um, you know, I mean, take a, if you really are called to be a nurse, can you be an entrepreneur and be a nurse? I, I don't think you, I don't know how that would work unless you start your own nursing company, but then you're not really a nurse and anymore. You're, you're, a, you're yeah, a leader yeah, of yeah. nursing. <laughs> uh, I, I highly respect those people. I don't think that everybody who's called to be in education should start a school, you know, should start a for-profit school. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think some people are called to be teachers, at, like teachers in schools. Like I'm a teacher, but I don't, I'm not in schools. I think some people, you know, are, are military, well, you know, are military, you know, um, if you're called to do that, like so many people, their lifelong dream was to be a Navy SEAL and they are a Navy SEAL now. I don't necessarily believe that they should be an entrepreneur at the same time, although many of them are. That's a, there's a high rate of entrepreneurship. You can say there is probably quite a, there's probably quite a link to, uh, to Navy SEALs and entrepreneurship, but no, uh, yeah. I, I, I do get the point. Yeah. Just to give you like my perspective on this as well, because I, I, I think you're right. I think you're completely right. And I think we're on the same page. And I even think in some bigger businesses and in, in, in the corporate world, it's not necessarily the case that you need to leave the corporate world and, and go and do your own thing. If you've got no. a job that you love, if you're working for a company that you love and you all have the same vision and you're in it together and you're happy, keep doing it because actually Absolutely. you are turning your passions Absolutely. into profits. But for lots of other people, entrepreneurship is the right way to go. And, and that's yeah. where I think then yeah. if you want to take that next step, I think uh, from what I'm seeing, that's where you come in and that's where you can help them. Yeah, the very first, when I originally wrote the manuscript and, and my publisher made me take this out, um, and I see why, but the very first page of the book basically said, if you already love what you're doing and you're making the amount of money that you want to make, that's the thing. Some people want, they're like, they love making $52,000 a year. Cool. They, it's other, people say, um, yeah. other people say i have to make 160. there is neither one of those answers is wrong or right that's individual it, the both of those answers are right for them and i say if you are currently doing what you love making what you want to make 
uh, do me a favor and give this book to somebody who's not, <laughs> you know, <laughs> do yourself a favor because they will love you for it forever. And of course, what the publisher is saying is like, hey, we don't want to discourage people from reading the book that they bought, you know, and I'm like, no, I do. But okay, I'll take that out because I want to discourage them from re like, this is not for you. You're already doing it. The, the issue yeah. is statistically, and this is, you know, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the United States, we've all heard the the numbers give or take a couple of percent 95 to 97 percent of people are not doing that they are either making considerably less than they want to make or they are doing a job that they hate 88 percent of all workers are completely disengaged from their work so even if we just go with that as the low number that means 88 percent of the population of the united states at least is and i'm assuming that's roughly equal worldwide it's not like it's going to be drastically different in norway yeah. you know um 88 roughly of everybody is doing work that they don't really give a flying crap about so how do we solve that and that's ultimately uh, this book is a path it is not the path because again if you are currently in a job as an accountant and you hate being an accountant and you really 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 want to be a nurse this book is not the answer for you but i would imagine for probably two-thirds of that 80 88 percent so we'll just say about 60 percent of the the people this book is is the answer for that i think you're right um and uh, i i love the way you explain it i think we're on the same page um i personally anyway have heard people um sometimes who say all there is in life is entrepreneurship and if i'm honest that puts me off slightly <laughs> but i like your approach to it i like the way that you explain to people hey look here's what you can have and here are the and here's the how, because I think the how is as important as the what and the, and also the why. And uh, but then there's also options open to other people if they if they want to explore different routes. I I, I think that's perfect. Now I've got a couple of questions before you before we uh, part ways and and I let yeah. you go. But we've talked about leadership a lot during this conversation, and I, I, and I think you're completely right. Um, there is no perfect leader. There are lots of people who are good leaders, and there are some bad leaders. But there is no perfect leader. We're always learning and improving our leadership skills. But what I would say is there's a big difference between leadership and management. Two questions. Question one is, would you agree? That's a simple yes or no answer. And Absolutely. if the answer to that is yes, can you explain it? What do you think the differences, some of the differences are? Yeah, I mean, John Maxwell, The so chapter two of the book is all about leadership. And it's about the leadership in terms of leading a tribe, leading your followers, uh, building a following and being a leader to them. But it applies to business leadership as well, leading a group of people who work for you or with you. Uh, John Maxwell says leadership is influence. You want to sum up leadership in three words. That's it. One word, influence. It is influence. That is That is all it is. And so there's a lot of misconceptions about leadership in, in and I'm referring to the marketplace where, again, I'm a, a leader in the online marketing world. There's a lady uh, that I profile her in the book and, and she's got uh, she's got two autistic children. And when I interviewed her, she's like, well, I, I don't I don't think I'm qualified to, to, to teach this stuff. I want to start a platform teaching you know, parents how to help their autistic children, how to get through life with, you know, cause it's difficult when you've got autistic children, it's hard, it's harder than if you've got non-autistic children. There are challenges that present themselves. And she's like, I wanna help those parents, but I don't feel qualified. And I was like, why not? She's like, well, I don't have the letters behind my name. I didn't go to Harvard. I dropped out of community college. I said, but you told me you have two autistic children. She said, yeah. I said, I remember, I remember going like, gosh, I really don't wanna ask this question, but I'm gonna ask it. 
is probably going to get in trouble for asking this. I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying it on this show, probably going to get in trouble for putting in the book, but I'm going to do it anyway. I said, you ever thought about killing your children? <laughs> she said, <laughs> and I'm thinking she's going to go, sir, I cannot believe you asked me that. What a terrible question. She said every day. And I don't mean she's like thinking up ways to drown them or like dump their bodies in the East river. That's not what I mean. She's, but she's being a parent is hard. All right. Yeah, yeah. Being a parent of autistic children is harder, but there are times where gee, we just want to go, Oh my gosh, why did I ever do that? You know, I saw a tweet the other day that said, instead of spending a leisurely Saturday afternoon, I get to hear a kid crying because somebody forgot to put their uniform in the dryer. And I went, yep, that happens once a month in our house. Because mm -hmm. where are the soccer socks? Don't know. They're your responsibility, you know? And so we go through these things and it's hard. And I said, but you haven't. You haven't killed them. In fact, you told me you got a 13 and a 10-year-old. They make great grades. They have friends. They're, they're playing sports. You're raising successful, well-adjusted children who have autism. Why don't you just talk about that? Screw the letters behind your name, screw the degree, screw whether or not you even know what, how to pronounce the word cerebellum or amygdala, who cares? And this is not in the book because I wrote the manuscript over a year ago and she told me about six months ago, she sent me an email and said, Matt, I just got my 10,000th YouTube subscriber. Oh, nice. 10,000 YouTube subscribers. She posted a video. This is one of the things that she and I talked about. She posted a video about how to travel with autistic children. It's hard. She said it freaks the parents out. It freaks the kids out because you take a kid who's, whose life is built on routine and you disrupt the routine. You wake them up early. You keep them up late. You put them on a metal tube with 200 other people that are sitting way too close to you and they're leaning their chair backs. Like you don't have to have autism to just want to go crazy and snap on an airplane let alone if you do have autism, but she successfully traveled with these kids and she did a YouTube video that has over 100,000, 200,000 views. And one of the people left a comment and said, thank you so much. I have a seven-year-old autistic child. We haven't left our county in four years because I've been so afraid to travel. I just booked a flight for us to Hawaii. Oh, that's brilliant. That is leadership. There's this misconception yes, about leadership that we feel like we have to be so far ahead of our audience that we have to be the expert on everything. And, and leadership is hard. Leadership is difficult. Leadership is scary. But the problem with thinking those things is that's focused on me, not my avatar, not my potential customers, not my followers. Leadership is all, all it is, is a choice. And your audience, need, they, they need you to lead them. They are somebody out there right now needs you to lead them. There are potentially millions of people who are waiting for you to lead them. And the, the picture that I paint in the book is, you know, imagine you're on a hike and you're on a hike with this super fit friend, right? This super fit friend, like the kind of friend who's always been in shape. He's got muscles bulging. He, you know, runs marathons. You don't have to ask him if he does CrossFit because he's already told you six times this week, you know, wears bike <laughs> shorts to a cookout for no reason, jogs in place at stoplights. You know that guy, right? Like smells like soup mix all the time. And you're on this hike. And there's, I, when I tell this story, I always picture this particular hike that I've been on a few times in East Tennessee. You go up about two miles and you go along this ledge for two miles and then down two miles. And when you're up on this ledge for the, the two mile stretch or so, there are parts where if you take one wrong step, you will fall to your death. Like you're, there's no way you're surviving a 2000 foot fall down a rocky cliff. You're going to die. And this super fit friend is two miles ahead of you yelling back to you going, hey, hurry up. And watch out for, watch out for the what? What am I supposed to watch out for? You're two miles ahead of me. 
What a better place to lead from. One step ahead, he reaches back his hand and he says, I'm going to hold your hand for the next two miles. You're going to come on this journey with me. I'm not going to be up ahead yelling at you. And by the way, watch out for this next step. It's a little tricky. That's leadership. So there are people waiting for you to reach your hand back, to grab their hand, grab their hand and show them where to go. That's all leadership is. I 100% agree with you. And I love your story to explain it. And it's actually leading into my final question. Yeah. Throughout this show so far, whenever I've asked you a question, um, you have been the perfect guest in many ways, considering this is called Storytelling with Puck, because <laughs> you have explained things using a story. Now, with everything that you're doing, with exploring leadership, with exploring turning your passion into profits, what is the importance of using stories to make that happen? It's everything. Um, I'll tell another story. <laughs> I'll tell a story Please to answer your question. Uh, <laughs> I wrote this book for, for most of the people listening. Um, it's step one through step 10, right? It's very sequential. Start with clarifying who you help, you commit to leading, you capture attention, you convert visitors and subscribers all the way to the end where we monetize and we create consistent content, right? I wrote it to take somebody through the steps, somebody who's starting at zero or they have an idea, maybe they're a little bit clear on their passion, but that's about as far as they've gotten. So most of the people, you know, you're sitting in a cube right now, sitting in an office, and you're like, I want to start an online business. This book is for you. All right. I did not write it for a seven figure business owner. That's not who I wrote it for. But in step four, I talk about how to create a lead magnet, how to convert visitors into subscribers, why you need an email list, all these things. And I tell this story about lead magnets. A lead magnet is a, is a way of capturing email addresses, right? It's the thing that you offer to potential subscribers in exchange for uh, their, their email address, right? And I talk about how it doesn't have to be a comprehensive guide. It doesn't have to be like this detailed manual. Sometimes those make the worst because they're overwhelming. And I share how you want it to be a quick win. And I share two examples in there. I share the first example about a quick win, offering a quick win is that imagine you have a friend in pain, their, their back is killing them and they come to you and say, oh my gosh, my back is hurting, what can I do? And you say, uh, yeah, here's a list of 37 exercises and a chiropractor appointment for next Thursday. You are no longer my friend, all right? <laughs> I want an ibuprofen. I want you to do something to my back right now that fixes it. Then I'm open to your 37 exercises. In fact, I'll pay you for the 37 exercises. Yeah, yeah. And I tell the story of my dad, my dad, who I mentioned earlier, you know, he passed away in 2005, never owned a computer, never got online, never had a, a phone, never had a, I'm sorry, he had a phone, but not a, a cell phone. So my dad never did lead magnets. He never built an online business, right? Never, like a, a preacher, he never got on the internet a single day in his life. How is it that my dad had the best lead magnet of anybody I've ever seen? Because I would watch my dad as a golf instructor, living out his passion, he would be on the practice tee and he would look for somebody who was in pain, not physical pain, but he would look for somebody who would hit a golf shot and go, ah, dang it. They'd slam their club down. I hate this stupid game. I'm quitting. That's who he'd look for. And he'd go up to him and he would say, Hey, can I help you out for a few minutes? They're in pain. What are they going to say? No, I don't want your help. No, I mean, he's the golf instructor. He's the authority there. And he would say, yeah. And he's, and he'd give him like one tip, one little thing. <laughs> 
and they'd hit a few shots and he'd, he'd spend five minutes, just five minutes. That's what a lead magnet is. It's five minutes. It's a quick win. He spent five minutes with them and they would look at him and go, oh my gosh, I haven't hit a ball like that in five years. How do I get more lessons? And then he would sign him up for a thousand dollar golf instruction package. And I told that story in the book. It's just a story to kind of get you in the right mindset of what a lead magnet is. And my friend who runs about a two and a half million dollar a year company said, Matt, I get an advanced copy of the book. And he said, Matt, I read that. And I read your rules about lead magnets, you know, tying into that. You define one problem and you solve that one problem. And then we have the three hour rule. You cannot take more than three hours to create a lead magnet. It has to be something you can put together quickly because that's what it, that's what you want. You don't want it to be so detailed. It solves a specific pain point. And he said, when you told that story about your dad's story, not the lessons, you can go Google how to create a lead magnet. All right. And you'll find a million tips none of which are as succinct as this book and how quick, how quickly I go through it in the book. But he said that story, he said, I just have to do the thing that your dad did. What is, what's that? What can I do in five minutes that would make them go boom, quick win and look at me and go, how do we do more? He said, we tweaked our lead. We took a day. We followed your rules. We had four lead minutes. We spent the entire day. So we can only spend two hours per. He said, we spent less than that. We re-engineered all of our lead magnets. He said, overnight, we increased our opt-in rate by 40%. 40% more leads for their business, which means 40% more income. In fact, it's going to be more than 40% more income because he said that the response rate, this is only in like three weeks, has been higher because the people are getting what they came for and they're going, oh my gosh, if you solve my problem in five minutes, just like my dad did, what can you do if I pay you $500 for a course that's six hours long? What am I going to get from that? And so it was that story, not the lesson, not the, the, you know, step one, step two, step three. It was the story that was what clicked in his brain. Now we're not all wired like that, but most of us are. He will never forget that story. When his team comes to him and says, how do we create a lead magnet three years from now? Do you think he's going to remember step one, step two, step three, step four? No, he's not going to remember that. What he will remember for the rest of his life is the story about my dad. And I'll tell that story for the rest of my life because it so succinctly describes what a lead magnet is. That's to me is the power of story. That's beautiful. I agree with you 100%. And what story does is it makes you feel, it makes you connect, it makes you imagine your own versions of the story. As you were telling it, I was thinking about different stories. I was thinking about the people who go out onto the streets and give you a taste of cheese um, because they're selling uh, bigger um, cheeses inside of a cheese shop. But that one taste brings you into the shop and then you want to get more. I was um, thinking about somebody playing a, little, um, uh, a, a set-up orchestra outside on the street um, which then makes you go, but where's this orchestra come from? Why are they playing outside in the street? Oh, it's the Philharmonic. It's the Eindhoven Philharmonic. Oh, okay. I wonder where they're playing tonight. Oh, let's find out. It's all of those little things that give you a taste. And it's the way that uh, the taste is about the way it makes you feel. But the story is getting me that you just told got me to think about those things. Somebody else listening is going to be thinking about something completely different, but either way, the result will be the same. And I think that's, uh, that's exactly why the power of story connects us on a deeper level and then gets us to actually take action and do something afterwards so i think you're completely right and i love your explanation of it so 
It's much appreciated. I've appreciated every word you've said today. It's um, It's been fascinating. Our listeners are going to, to love it. And what they're also going to want to know um, is how they can find you and also um, how they can buy uh, your book. I think at the time of recording, it's not yet been released, but by the time this podcast is released, it will be. So so where can, uh, where can our listeners find it? Yeah. Um, so super, super easy. Uh, you can buy the book anywhere. You can buy it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Books a Million, Target, Walmart, like wherever you buy books, you can get my book. Uh, but the best place to go, passionsintoprofitsbook.com forward slash puck. So passionsintoprofitsbook.com forward slash puck. Uh, we got a ton of, of extra bonuses there for uh, for your listeners, Stefano. So that's the best place to go. Like you can go grab it anywhere, but if you go there and, and then redeem your receipt there, we're going to give you some extra stuff, uh, some stuff that'll help you along the way. A lot of stuff that we couldn't fit into the book. You know, it's an 82,000 word book. Uh, it's long, it's almost 300 pages, but there was so much more in the original manuscripts. So you get some bonuses there, some extra works, uh, some extra uh, uh, lessons that weren't we weren't able to get in the book that'll help you through uh, going through the book. Uh, so you get those there at passionsintoprofitsbook.com forward slash puck. Amazing. Um, we will make sure that we send uh, all of our listeners there so that they can uh, take advantage of the uh, of the extras. Um, and also, um, we'll uh, make sure that they go to your website so they can find out more about you as well. And if they want some of the extra stuff that you do, <laughs> they can uh, uh, they can discover more about you. But Matt, genuinely, um, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've really, really enjoyed this. Um, and uh, I am I, sure that our listeners will um, as well. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Stefano. And we will, as always, finish with a story by Puck Creations. I wasn't wearing diving gear, but breathing was natural. He started with a solitary note. My guide showed me the beauty of his home. Passersby smiled. I was welcome here. His fingers moved incrementally, slowly as he introduced G's, E's, and octaves. I took a deep breath, then another. Nothing was forced, my shoulders dropped. He was moving slightly faster now, using both hands. A friend came over, then another with concerned looks. My ears pricked up, but my body was still letting the water take me. He looked across to the viola and nodded as its harmonies were complemented by the bass sound of the cello. My tears turned to salty sea. I was still, I was holding on. He stopped, the strings stopped. We all looked across and he entered, the man with the drum. Bang, bang. When my heart bang 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 went his drum bang 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 went my heart bang 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 went the strings bang 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 went my heart bang 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 the piano went bang we all felt the bang and jolted to the sand Black. Black.
Solid land again, tranquil but lost. The percussion stopped, the strings stopped. I sat up, fawing slightly. He played a melody with just his right hand. Breathe. You've just been listening to an episode of the Storytelling with Puck podcast. Your support keeps our podcast going, so please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Subscribe to keep up to date with the latest episodes and never forget the importance of sharing your stories.